HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. As you know, uh, I interview many different people working to make changes to our food culture, policy, and industry through a broad range of mechanisms, be them in the public, private, or nonprofit space. And today, I'm excited to be interviewing Michael Winnick, founder and CEO of Our Harvest, a startup whose work could very well be the silver bullet to fixing our broken food system. And I'm not just being dramatic. <laughs> Full disclosure, Michael is also, wait for it, my boss. <laughs> um, as I announced at the beginning of the season, I recently started working at Our Harvest, which is an online farmer's market, delivering the region's best food to New Yorkers uh, throughout the city and Long Island. I am incredibly proud to be working for a startup whose mission um, I want to know, I want people to know more about, um, given what's at stake for our collective health, uh, the environment and the economy. And I'm really excited for you to learn more about it. This episode will be the first of a series um, about what it takes to strengthen our regional food sheds and the repercussions of doing so, and why this kind of work is imperative. We'll also be going in, uh, in depth about the recent Amazon Whole Foods merger and what it means for consumers, producers, and industry, and why you should care about it. So without further ado, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenna. Really glad to be here. Oh, really glad to have you. I feel like I haven't seen you in at least two weeks. <laughs> And like it's been like 24 hours. Um, okay, so let's start by talking about your background. Um, have you always been in the food space? I haven't. I actually started my career as an investment banker for over eight and a half years at a company called Evercore Partners. And food has always been what I care most about. Some people wake up, they're not sure what they're going to do. I'm always thinking about where the next meal is coming from. 
But in thinking about that, it's not just where the next meal is coming from, but literally, where is it coming from? <laughs> so the food itself, where was it grown? How was it grown? How did it happen? And so for me, the, the whole idea of starting Our Harvest really started years and years ago when I would go with my dad and my parents down to the Lower East Side of Manhattan to go to the best pickle shop or the best cheese shop. And how was it made? Why was it done? And so the, the concept of it sort of started when I was a kid, but really became more prominent over the past couple of years and then had the opportunity to leave and start it. So basically what you're saying is you left a career in investment banking to start a farmer's market? I did, which is sort of crazy, right? <laughs> it's a little I think, crazy. You know, were your parents like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, no, well, <laughs> the parents themselves were a little, you know, support, questioning at first and supportive. My wife's grandparents, however, not so much yeah. until they tried the food. And then they realized, like, the honest answer they give me, which is common to our customers, is, boy, I haven't had that kind of food since I was a kid because the food itself is so fresh. So I think that's one of those things where, you know, proof is in the pudding. Once people taste it and see it and, be, you know, understand what the business is about, mm -hmm. they become hooked. So let, why don't we tell, I kind of gave, gave a, a little bit of a, a preview um, in the introduction, but tell us, you know, what, what the company does, how yeah. it works. Yeah, so Our Harvest is an online farmer's market. Customers can come on to our site, ourharvest.com, and shop for all natural farm fresh food. We've partnered with over 150 different farms, vendors, suppliers, ranging from local farms all across the greater New York area to uh, bakeries to uh, people who are making jam right here in Bushwick. And so for us, the, the whole idea was basically to bring that farm fresh food directly to customers. And, and part of the genesis of it actually was shopping at, at Whole Foods in a traditional grocery store and it being literally the, the peak of apple season and walking in and looking at the apple and saying, why is Wickham's Fruit Farm on the North Fork of Long Island, one of my favorite farms, throwing out apples or donating them because they can't sell them? Mm -hmm. And why am I getting an apple from New Zealand, which is covered in wax? You know, it's, it's certified organic, but it's covered in wax and tastes like nothing. Yeah. It sort of makes no sense. And it's sort of sad that we have all these amazing farms that are being completely underutilized and underappreciated. Why is it covered in wax? They cover it in, they cover it in wax actually so... By the time it gets to you, it's probably been traveling for six to nine months. And That's so th crazy. It's insanity. Yeah. And so they coat it in wax to protect the inside from totally rotting. So it's <laughs> so gross. And chemicals and all this other stuff, even if it's certified organic. And so it just it makes no sense. Um, uh, why? Wait, why would it be covered in pesticides if it's organic? Well, it wouldn't be pest. So it wouldn't necessarily be pesticides in the in the sense that you think they're synthetic pesticides and there are also certain sprays and other things that organic farmers are allowed to use that are certified uh, organic that that can cause just as much harm to both the environment or, or towards individuals than a synthetic pesticide i think a lot of people don't realize that that you can you can actually spray if you yeah you I know mean, and still be certified organic exactly you could use certain things certain things yep um, okay, so food space, super different than banking, I, th I think. I was never very, a banker. Very different <laughs> in some ways. And so, well, actually, how is it? I mean, how, what are the major differences that you kind of, when you got into the food space, you were like, to, I mean, I, would, I don't want to say fish out of water, but like totally, um, you know, not exposed to previously? <laughs> Well, one thing I was exposed to previously is people generally don't like investment bankers. And <laughs> no. It's a, it's a shocker, I know. Um, but it turns out that farmers especially don't like investment bankers. <laughs> so getting farmers to actually sign up to join the Air Harvest concept yeah. was quite a struggle, actually. It took over a year to get just five farms to sign up. Wow. And what eventually... Why don't they? Have they just been like... I mean, what is the whole... 
where, why is, or are they just trustful? No, I think, I think you have like sort of like the stereotypical story, but every farm has a friend whose farm was taken away by the bank. And so it may not have nothing to do with an actual investment banker, but farmers themselves have always struggled. So farmers, as you know, no one's dropping out of like Harvard Business School to start a farm. Right. It's not a very profitable thing. It's not something where, you know, you make a lot of money and sometimes don't even have enough to support your family. So it's sort of strange that like a local farmer is act- who's providing the food, who is spending the most time getting the food to your table is making the least from it and yeah. struggling the most. And so, you know, I think the the idea that farmers know their friends or their neighbors who've had trouble with a bank or financially is part of the reason why they didn't didn't trust an investment banker. So how did you win them over? Because you did. Now we've over 150 producers. A a lot of persistence. So constantly calling them and sort of bugging them until they finally gave in. And then connections with them in certain cases. So I happened to get connected, no joke, to a farm out on the East End called Briarmere Farm, which makes amazing pies uh, that everyone wants and we can't sell. But... (laughs) um, you know, from my wife's grandmother who had been going to that farm for 40 years. And so she's like, ah, sell to my grand, you know, my grandson's business. And that was it. And same with, uh, with Satter Farms, the way I got connected with them is my doctor happened to be their doctor, just like a a coincidence. So a lot, a couple of stories, we get two farms to sign up and then what happens and because our business works and we treat the farmers so well, they sign up. And then within two weeks, every farm started telling their friends, hey, these guys, one, they pay their bills, two, they're really, really honest, the, the system's great, we don't have to do anything. Like, from a farmer's perspective, our harvest is sort of the ideal, right? Because farmers like to do one thing, and that's grow. They don't like to market, they don't like to go to farmer's markets and wake up at two in the morning and drive four hours to set up a table. They don't, you know, they don't like, uh, uh, you know, worrying about how to market themselves or, or you know, sell their business to mm-hmm. different distributors. And so, we have the opportunity to basically send a truck out to the farm, pick it up, and leave the farmer on the farm doing what they do best. Growing. What has been the biggest challenge since the company started? Yeah, so I think the, the challenge has flipped a little bit. The, the, initial, the initial challenge, right, was, like I said before, getting farmers to sign up. Um, so to launch, it was five farms and 20 products, and 20 products does not make a grocery store. Right. Um, so basically trying to slowly build that I infrastructure mean, do you, over place. Do you over see time. this as a, as a grocery store, though, or like a full, you know, full service, are we? No, not, not in the way that you would think like a stop and shop or a Whole Foods is where you can go and get frosted flakes and, you know, you know paper towels and all of that. Like we're, we're trying to bring the very fresh, the freshest, most delicious food to you. Mm-hmm. So think of us as... You know, not just your neighborhood farmer's market, but if your neighborhood's neighborhood farmer's market encapsulated, first of all, was readily available to you all the time, mm-hmm. but also encapsulated 150 of the very best farms and producers in the entire area. So it's not just like, like you know, one or two farms in your neighborhood. Um, it's literally every farm in the greater New York area that has signed up, which is a lot of them. So it's like a souped up version of the Union Square Green Market that delivers. Yeah, it's like the Union Square Green Market on steroids, but with even greater product diversity and product selection. And by the way, we're curating the product. So one of the intimidating things about going to a farmer's market, if you're not a chef, is what variety of apple is the best or which farm has the best carrot or which farm has the best strawberry. And one thing that we're serving to do is going to every single farm, finding out what each individual farmer grows, knows and grows the best. And then bringing that specific product to you. We might carry gala apples from one farm and empire apples from another and Honeycrisp from a third because each one is better at growing that variety. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the food, like more about kind of the, the startup space, the food startup space. And, you know, as we all know, this has been 
an increasingly popular and um, crowded crowded space, um, to say the least. And there are like so many companies starting and then failing just as fast. So, like, what one or two maybe have you seen since since our harvest has been in business that kind of went under? And what were the lessons that you took away from that particular company? Yeah. So. What you're talking before about the biggest challenges, and I think it relates a lot to this question. Yes, sorry, so, I cut you no, off. On no, that. no, no, because it's it's exactly the same answer, which is managing logistics of food is very challenging, and that's why there haven't been any successful farm-to-table businesses. There are restaurants, but they really generally don't buy directly from the farm. There's a small handful that do, mm-hmm. but most don't. And so the the challenge is making sure that food, which has a shelf life which perishes, especially if it's local and grown the right way, can turn as fast as 24 hours, gets from harvest to the customer as fast as possible. And so most food businesses and far online farmers markets uh, that sort of got into the space and raised a lot of money had really awesome marketing. They really got a lot of customers fast, but never actually solved the critical question, which is how do you get f- uh, food from the farm to the customer as quickly as possible. And we've spent three and a half years solving and figuring out that problem. And the other problem I think that a lot of food businesses never really solved or have thought they could but haven't is that last mile of delivery issue. Mm -hmm. Where the last mile of delivery, how many, this is a question I always ask, but how many deliveries can one person do in an hour? And the answer is a very small number because there's all sorts of things that slow it down. And so if you only could do two deliveries in an hour and you're serving thousands of customers, how many delivery guys do you need? It's very expensive. Right. You pay them properly. I mean, is that, is that, by the way, is that like two an hour? Is that made up or is that like, was that a number? It's a hypothetical number, but okay. it could be from two to five, depending upon how, how dense and how concentrated you are. Mm-hmm. It could be more if I literally have every customer in one building. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's, it's challenging. You get to get the food up to the floor. The person has to ring the doorbell and answer the door. There's, there's a whole process it takes to actually d- deliver food. Yeah. And the number of deliveries one can do in an hour is a great limitation on how fast and how quickly you can scale and grow. So what is a company that you have seen that is like really actually or that you think is really promising right now that you think can sort of take off? Mm. Like a food, you know, I think, you know, this will will bring it into the Amazon Whole Foods world. But I think a lot of businesses right now are trying to figure out exactly how to respond and react to Amazon Whole Foods because Mm -hmm. it's sort of the businesses that I would have thought were really great and really sustainable or probably going to face significant pressure now. Mm-hmm. So businesses like uh, a Thrive Market, which is really sort of like a Costco um, for dry goods. So like our harvest isn't selling paper towels or you know soap or whatever. Like Thrive Market is trying to sell things in bulk and large quantities. So sort of fitting that Costco model, you know, basically online and subscription through, through, subscription yeah. through the through the through the mail. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of consequences to doing that. Um, but I think that that business was is very promising. I think that the the challenge now is that you have Amazon, who now has you know food expertise, uh, and is going to compete directly with them, and is by far the most efficient in operating a business like that. So yes. I think businesses like that are you know are very interesting. Um, how is you know our harvest because we because the company does have a wide range of products. Um, how is it different than like a Whole Foods that kind of bills itself as a better Con, you know that like it sort of builds itself as not a conventional grocery store and when I think conventional I think of like Key Foods or Kroger um, so how is our harvest different? Whole Foods is a well branded conventional grocery store that's actually what Whole Foods is. What does that mean? So they do better a little bit better sourcing than uh, 
than well, I don't know. Kroger's pretty good, but they do they do better sourcing than a traditional, typical traditional grocery store than Key Foods. So they have some relationships with local vendors that they try to support, but certainly that they advertise. And they also have like a real, like really cool scale, like how sustainable is this product or, you know, how, you know, they give you like notes to tell you how is that, how that product was grown, like a little bit detail, mm-hmm. but really it's just growing from an industrial, you know, farm might, might be certified organic, um, but it's still taking days and days and days to get here. So the tomatoes you see on the shelf at Whole Foods is exactly the same kind of tomato that you'd see on the shelf of any supermarket. It's just grown, you know, from, a, from, you know, a source that Whole Foods is saying is, is legit. What about Trader Joe's? People love that place. Like, love that place. Everyone loves Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is is a really cool business. And Trader Joe's, like its name implies, was is basically a trading business. So what Trader Joe's does is they go around and they find the cheapest product from wherever in the world it is and bring it in so they're able to offer the more limited selection at a very, very cheap price. So if almonds are cheapest in Thailand today, they buy their almonds from Thailand. And so one thing I always encourage people as an, you know, from the harvest perspective is look where those products are coming from. Mm-hmm. And so they might they might be really cheap and the quality actually is decent for the for the price, but that the impact to the environment, the impact to the, the food system is not is not healthy, in my opinion. Um, because food is coming from so far away and they don't really take into account how things are produced. They, they don't take into account how things it's really hard for someone in the United States to, you know, there might be a farm in China or a farm in Thailand or whatever that says they're going to U.S. organic standards, but it's really hard for us to monitor that. And so I think you're going to see an increasing amount of uh, not government intervention because that's the wrong word, but you're going to see stories break about. We're going to talk about regulation in a minute, which is my favorite. It is actually my favorite. I know. I know it is. Which makes me an interesting uh, choice for a private, the private sector. But um, <laughs> that is true. I feel like there's a happy medium there. I'm sure there is, and we'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to it for sure. Um, so you know, I think you're going to see an increasing amount of <laughs> of um, of bad press towards some of these international farms where the standards aren't able to be monitored. Right, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, consumers need to be re- need to be. Uh, educated, a hundred, a hundred percent. But I think you know one one thing that differentiates us as a business is, Jen. I think it's ninety nine percent of our product comes from within two hundred fifty miles of New York, mm-hmm. and so ninety eight point three, ninety eight point three percent. Thank you. Uh, I'm <laughs> off. I should have rounded down. Um, so, so I think that that's that's really telling in that we are doing everything we can to support the regional food system to find local farmers and startup food vendors that are doing things the right way that are growing to high standards that have really really incredible fresh delicious product and bringing it directly directly to you without all the middlemen in between touching it. I mean, that what does that really mean because I see I see um you know advertisements from a, another company who is a grocery delivery company in the New York area that is very popular, whose products are not close to the quality of our products, but they like really bill themselves as being such. And they make statements like, we cut out the middleman, your farmer straight to you. And it makes my head explode because I just want to scream like you are, you are actually the definition of a middleman. It's a conventional grocery store that sells online. That's, that, that business can remain nameless, but exa- exactly. So when, when you think about what our harvest is actually what our harvest is actually doing, we are placing our when you place your order, we're then placing our order with our farms. We're literally sending our trucks to the farms. We're picking up that food, bringing it back to our facility, and within 24 hours, 36 hours, that food is arriving on your you know in a bag 
to your door. So we're literally controlling the entire supply chain from start to finish and doing our best to make sure that the farmer is getting a very fair share, a large share of the retail price, mm-hmm. much larger than they would in a model that sells through to a Whole Foods or a traditional grocery store. And two, we actually are the only people that are touching the product in most instances. Well, how is that different than like a, you know, to anyone else? I mean, any well, other? So most people buy from a distributor who then buy, who's buying from someone who's buying from the farm. So actually the step could be as many as three people standing in between a farm and a grocery store, or as many as I've seen eight or nine people. And so a lot of issues why would there need raised. to be so many people? I don't understand. We can talk about that for hours, and maybe that's that's like a topic of <laughs> okay. like an, another show. All but, right. <laughs> but 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 you're but, keeping but, me on point. No, no, Thank no. You. But, <laughs> but 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 simply, the food system was set, the current food system was set up generations and generations ago to support rail travel, basically, and things haven't changed in 50, 70, 80 years. And so these mega farms that grow things really cheaply out in the West or in the Midwest are basically supplying food for a large percentage of the country. And once once container tr- container travel, refrigerated container travel existed, food can come in from pretty much anywhere in the world. And so now what's happening is uh, people are trying to find the cheapest food that's out there and bringing it in because people are primed, get the cheapest, get the cheapest, get the cheapest. What they should be asking is get the best at the best price. That's how, that's how the question should the, the way the question should be asked, which um, do, it doesn't necessarily mean a race to the bottom. Best price doesn't necessarily mean a race to the bottom because I think that that is the current. I mean, that's what drives consumer purchasing, in my opinion. In by by and large, w- w- you know, within the food space. No, for for sure. So for us, we have a very efficient way of buying uh, beef. We actually take whole animals, which is completely unique in the food space. And so we're able to maximize um, usage of, the, of every animal we take. Mm-hmm. And as a result, our prices are dramatically lower than any other place. So we're able to sell ground beef for half of what you get at, you know, 100% grass-fed, beautifully marbled ground beef at half the price of a Whole Foods because we're doing things in a much more efficient way. And there's no middleman between us. We're not buying from a distributor. Mm-hmm. We bring our truck, you know, right up to the farm, basically. So, you know, it's a, it's a much different, much smoother system. And by cutting out all those five people in between that are touching the product, we're able, one, to control quality the whole way through, mm-hmm. but also get rid of all the markups that those people charge. Um, what is uh, one thing that I recently learned is that ground beef that you get at a Whole Foods, for instance, doesn't come from one animal. I always thought that it was, you know, just that cow. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty gross, and I won't go into like graphic detail. I'm here. like, oh no, you should go into but, graphic detail. Oh, you want me to go into graphic totally, detail? Totally, so let's ba- do it. So basically, the way it works with the traditional uh, ground beef product that you get at a grocery store. So, um, multiple farmers basically show up to these mega mega plants, mm-hmm. uh, slaughterhouses, at sort of as bad as you could possibly imagine, where they're literally just unloading trucks and trucks of of animals who've been sort of confined their whole lives, and they end up basically on a conveyor belt, and all of them get butchered uh, in sort of an automated fashion and no one is like actually saying this this ground this beef came from this animal it all goes into the same pile and then gets it gets cut and processed uh, further so when you're getting ground beef it may be coming from literally 30 or 40 animals who all have gone into that plant at the same time and so what, what we're doing is we're we're talking directly to the farmer grown to the standards that we specifically want it grown to and we're taking a single animal uh, that we know is, is being butchered humanely and treated properly. And so our food is all coming from that specific, very single animal. But so it's a very completely different different model than you get when 
40 or 50 animals are being processed in a minute, a mega, mega plant. But this is Whole Foods we're talking about. So, I mean, honestly, I you know, if they say, like, grass-fed, whatever, um, <laughs> grass-fed, sustainably produced, is that still, doesn't that mean that you're taking a whole animal? Or does that, is it the same kind of system for, for beef production? They, they might have visibility. And I would say that they are infinitely better than any other grocery store mm-hmm. doing this to give to give them credit. I don't want to constantly berate them, but, right. but the, the the truth is that you know they, there might be ten animals coming from a specific more industrial farm that might have better treatment of animals and might be humanely certified, but still it's not necessarily tagged to a specific animal. So it might go into that same pile. It's just it's just been uh, from a, it's coming from a farm where things are done a little bit more uh, sustainably. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a really quick break um, and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, But when we get back, we are going to talk a little bit more, or actually we're going to go into depth about the um, acquisition of Amazon, uh, um, sorry, the the Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods um, and what it means for consumers, producers, policy, and industry. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds. Depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. (laughs) You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we're back. 
on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Michael Winnick, founder and CEO of Our Harvest, an online farmer's market delivering throughout the New York City area and Long Island. Uh, okay, so now that we're back, let's let's talk even more about Whole Foods, but more specifically about Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. Um, this is a conversation I have been wanting to have for a really long time with you on air because you are so uniquely positioned, given the fact that you used to you specialize in M and A, right? Yep. Um, at Evercore, and um, you left you left to start a food retail business, looking to disrupt the conventional grocery system. So, like, I literally don't know anyone else who's better to talk about this. Um, so, yay! So, let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, okay. So what is this? First, can you just give us an overview of kind of what happened, like uh, the, the merger itself or the acquisition itself? Yeah. So basically, Whole Foods as a business is a terrific business, very successful, but they were reaching a point where their growth was slowing down. Like as a business. As a, as a company, their growth was slowing down, mm-hmm. which is a natural thing when you get to be as large as Whole Foods was. But, you know, if you think about what Whole Foods is, they target... Uh, very, very wealthy people. And there's only so many neighborhoods that can support the Whole Foods prices. Mm-hmm. And so Whole Foods are reaching a point where how do you grow when you sort of reached your saturation point with your customer base? And so uh, what actually went down is a couple of uh, activist investors were were basically buying up shares of Whole Foods and putting pressure on the management team to sell the company. Uh, Maybe a silly question, but what's an activist investor? So not activist in like the the way you'd think like grassroots activist. This right. is someone who basically buys shares of a company and complains about the company's management, says it's not being managed properly, basically anything they can do to increase the share price while they're owning it. And generally that means try to force a sale or some sort of transaction which will maximize the value to that activist investor. That seems pretty selfish. It it is. It you know, it can be. It depends. There are activist investors that do things in in a better way that are supporting businesses, you know, you know, for sustainability or political reasons, but generally, generally, it's it's something where there's you know they see a business problem and the management team isn't addressing it, mm-hmm. and they do what they can to pressure the company to change. Okay. Um, so in, in that way, it's activists. So Whole Foods had a few activist investors come on that are basically pressuring the company to figure out how to grow, and the the answer is it's really hard to grow when you've reached that saturation point. So Whole Foods was pressured to sell, and I think ultimately um, they bowed to the pressure and sold the company. Whether or not it's the bet was. The, in the long run, the very best thing for the shareholders and the participants in the you know in the business that's to be seen, uh, but it was a good financial decision for the activist investors. That's for sure. Um, well, I mean, just so it was a good decision for a few people. Well, if you were, to, it depends upon as a shareholder when you bought into the company. So you, it might have been a really good decision for you, or it might have been a bad one. It's unclear because we don't know how you know the Amazon deal is going to perform from a. You know, well, Whole Foods shareholders are out, so it doesn't really matter. But I think it'll be interesting to see how um, how that deal impacts the broader food system. Was it a good deal for John Mackey? <laughs> um, I, mm, <laughs> I, I think I think he would have preferred to not. Yeah, that, that's my again. I no no specific information, but you've been talked to him about it. No, um, but but you know, I think he probably would have preferred to Hold be standalone. Company. That's right. What was your initial reaction to it? First thing you thought. My first reaction from thinking is like, you know, from running Our Harvest was, oh, crap. 
Um, we now have someone who is a really strong Goliath. Yeah, Goliath. Basically, the rich getting richer. Like yeah. you know, Goliath buying the best grocery store, you know, best traditional grocery store uh, in the biz, and trying to basically nationalize that and bring it everywhere. Um, so my initial reaction was, oh crap. Uh-oh. But but uh, the the more I thought about it, actually, the the more I feel like it's actually a, a better thing for our harvest, which is which is weird. Um, to think that because now we have this very, you know, sort of strong, powerful competitor. But the truth is that one of the challenges in online grocery actually is that people tend to not buy their groceries online. I think it's like one to three percent of the population has purchased groceries online. And so anything that encourages people. Fresh, fresh food. Fr- fresh. But gro- groceries, I think. In general. The, the grocery category, I think, okay. is like three per- that that. It could be dated data, but that's the the way, last time I read about it, it was about 3%. Okay. And so it's a very small percentage of the public at large. And so anything that gets people to shop more online is a great win for our harvest because as a company, we're completely uniquely positioned to fight sort of the Amazon Whole Foods Goliath because what we're doing is everything they're not. We're supporting local farmers. We're fixing the local s- supply chain. We're bringing food as fresh as possible directly to people. And the, the idea of Amazon Whole Foods is to actually further industrialize sort of the Whole Foods business model. So, you know, Amazon as a company, they don't really care where anything comes from. Their goal is to push as much product out out the door. And to the extent that it's advantageous from them from a brand perspective, they might advertise that. But the business itself is like, how can we automate things? How could we make it more efficient uh, as as a company? And so buying Whole Foods is basically helping Amazon buy grocery expertise, which they sorely lacked and they knew that they needed if they want to truly be the everything store. Right. Well, I have a question about that in a minute because that freaks me out. But is this the kind of deal you would have worked on in the past? Yes. Uh, I mean, I the answer is I probably wouldn't have worked on this specific deal. But yes, this is the kind of M&A deal that I would have worked on generally. And if your client was Whole Foods, would you have advised them to go through with this? It's re- From the outside, it's really challenging to, to say. Uh, it seemed like a decent deal, you know, from the Whole Foods perspective. So it's not something that I would have been like, no, you definitely shouldn't have. Like enough money, basically. It, it's it's literally impossible for okay, for yeah, me to yeah. for me to give like without an honest the financials. For, right, without knowing the financials or like what they how they thought they were going to grow. I think the like the question, the easiest way to explain it is Whole Foods had this sort of three sixty. I think it's three sixty concept or whatever, where it was these small stores in like. Uh, like less rich areas that they were going to try to grow through. Oh, 365. 365, 365 yes, they're, sorry. They're like their store brand. Exactly. I have bought a lot of their stuff. Yes, their private label stuff is wonderful. Yeah, it is really um, great. So, but they're not trying... as they great were, as our harvest. Definitely not. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. Uh, but they were but. trying They were trying to open these small, these small store, smaller format stores to compete more with like a Trader Joe's type mm-hmm. um, and get that customer. And I think from... You know, from the perspective of an investor, the question is, was that going to be successful or not? The answer is yes. Then maybe it didn't make sense to sell. But if you really didn't believe that they were a viable competitor to someone like Trader Joe's, then then maybe it made sense. And so for Amazon, it seems like this does make great sense. Yeah, this is a home. I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if they integrate it and manage it properly. But I think it's a home run from Amazon's perspective because they're trying to be the everything store. And they started a grocery business. And to start a grocery business is as I can say from experience, much more challenging than starting a business that just sells books or sells TVs or whatever, because again, food perishes. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, for Amazon, which is this mega, mega company to spend, a, even though it was a lot of money, you know, if you're a Whole Foods shareholder, um, you know, to spend a very small percentage of Amazon's, you know, money to buy a company that gives them, you know, incredible expertise in a topic, in a category where they didn't have it, 
is immensely valuable. Why do you, sir? I mean, I know this is also, why in your opinion are they trying to become the everything store? That concept, it freaks me out. That's, that's always what they've been. I mean, that's like the, that's Jeff Bezos's like mantra. Like we, we want to sell everything to everyone. And so that the idea of being able to do that, like think it's, think about it from a customer perspective, right? A customer cares about generally three things, sometimes four, but say three things in different order. They care about price, they care about convenience, and they care about quality. So if you can go to one location and in the blink of an eye have everything you need delivered to you within a day or two days, I mean, what's, yeah. and, and the prices are acceptable, then it's, you know, that it makes, it makes total sense from that perspective. I think that the people that are going to beat Amazon, it's sort of exactly what used to happen when you can go to a Sears and you'd buy TVs and you'd buy furniture and you'd buy groceries and you'd buy food, you'd buy everything. And people, that sort of conglomerate model went by the wayside when very, very targeted competitors came in that pulled customers away from them. So, you know, why would you go shop there for electronics if you have a Best Buy or a Circuit City, which is, you know, no longer around. <laughs> rest but if you had, maybe rest, that's, that, yeah. was, that was what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what I was going to say. So, no, but you have these, these sort of category killers come in and pull people away little by little. And I think Amazon's going to be uh, subject to the category killer where people are beating them on quality, on price, on branding, or on convenience, or one of the above, or in some cases, all of the above, mm-hmm. which is what we're trying to do. And so, so eventually, you know, eventually something will give. Eventually, something will give. Like one, of the, they will not. It will be. It will be impossible for them to maintain strength across every category without people coming in and peeling other customers away. And so, I well, think that to... I think that you know, if someone can do something better in a specific category, customers will will yield to that over time. Mm-hmm. But it could be a more you know, it's 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 an uphill battle, of course. Who will this impact the most? Farmers, distributors, consumers. Let's talk about the impact, um, the repercussions this will have on consumers. Because you know, for once, or for one, I mean, I think the first thing that people talk about is price. So they've started slashing price, um, which a lot of people are like, "That's really great for consumers." Like their bananas are now sixty nine percent from ninety nine. And I, sorry, I'm calling BS on that one because yeah. they went in and they they like lowered the price of like twelve products which were 12 products that customers routinely buy, like avocados and bananas and other things. So mm-hmm. the headline value of that, ooh, we're lowering prices, like, might be a little bit different than the actual reality of what it, go, what, what it is to go into a Whole Foods. But, but I think when you talk about an environment where prices are going to go down or the risk of grocery prices going down, the question is who's going to bear the brunt of this, right. which is, I think, where we are going. And I think the you know, one potential concern here is, is the farm going to bear the brunt of it? Because if prices go down, typically the farmer is the one that bears the brunt of it. So the way the way the system works, the distributor shows up to the farm with the truck and says, your your potatoes are 10 cents a pound today. And the next day they might come in and say, those potatoes are 7 cents a pound today. And the farmer's got no recourse because the farmer doesn't have alternate places to sell their product. Now, the idea that our harvest can come in and say, hey, we're going to pay you 50 cents or 60 cents for those potatoes and sell them for a dollar a pound mm-hmm. uh, is going to hopefully provide those farms an alternative. But I think you're going to see if, if there really are going to be a significant amount of price cuts across the board, you're going to see a lot of pressure on uh, different entities within the system, both distributors and the actual farmers themselves as prices get pushed down. And farmers themselves are people who can least afford to absorb a decline in price because right. they're struggling as it is. Can just, This is maybe super naive, but can distributors just really come in and just say, no, no. Today, this is a price. Yes, 
I mean, it's it's like, think about it. It's, it's, I mean, how? It's because it's 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 dictated by the market. Like, where, where are the prices of potatoes today? And if a person shows up to your, you know, if you're just a farmer that's growing, mm-hmm. and a truck shows up once a day or once a week and says, "I'm picking up today, and this is the price." The farm's got to yield to the price, so the farmer doesn't have doesn't have power because they don't have direct access to the customer. They don't have access to the end user, and by not having access to the end user, uh, they're ceding basically, you know, pricing power to the market. So if they could sell just directly to the end user, the end user would be like, okay, that's the price. But Ex- I mean, as a, cor- yeah, yeah. Cor- correct. But also, you know, they they the the, the customer end user might actually get a better price than they would through the system where five or six people might be touching the product. Right. Um, so that's sort of like we're. What our harvest is serving to do is sort of be that middleman between that farm mm-hmm. and the consumer. So we talk to the consumer and say, hey, we've got, you know, potatoes at a dollar a pound or a dollar and a pound for some cool variety. Um, and we're going to the farmer and saying, you get 60 percent of that. So instead of a store, like a kind of a different, our harvest is a bit of a different middleman, I guess, than, than what you typically see. Because I think that when we talked earlier about how there were, there is no, we are no middleman. Yeah, so we, no- we are the, we, we're sort of every, we're everything except for the farm. That's the best way to explain it. Like we don't own the we don't own the farms. The farms operate their own businesses. But basically, from the time the farmer harvests that apple to the mm-hmm. time it gets on your plate, there's no one in between except for us. So we're literally showing up at the farm with our truck. We're grabbing that apple. We're packing it in a bag for you and sending it out to, to delivery. Completely vertically integrated. Completely vertically integrated. Except so that, that's right, except yeah. for the farm. So that that's that's ba- the the main difference, right? Is that we're we're controlling that whole supply chain and are able to you know, make ourselves efficient, um, in a way that gets that product out in a way that's fresh, that's delicious and more nutritious. Mm-hmm. And it's more nutritious. Why? The longer food sits on the shelf. So if, if your tomatoes are harvested in California and sit on a truck for two and a half weeks or three weeks, every second that that food is, it's like anything else. Every single, every second that food is on that truck is it's degrading, um, from a nutritional perspective, from a taste perspective, from a quality perspective. And so by getting that food to you within a very short period of time, you're maximizing the nutritional value and yield of the, the produce that we sell. I mean, this may seem like an obvious question, but will quality go down? I mean, uh, like Whole Foods used to be kind of the best of the, well, we talked about this, of the yeah. conventional um, options. And so how do you think Amazon the, this will affect quality? I think over time, the quality will go go down. But what I will say is that Amazon, unlike our harvest, where we're trying to really curate an experience for a customer where this apple is the best at the best price, this carrot is the best at the best price. Amazon wants to sell everything. Amazon doesn't care if it sells 600 different tomatoes that are all the same tomato from 600 different, you know, different vendors. So Whole Foods and the Amazon platform is just going to be one more set of products that a customer can choose from. And so, you know, will the quality of the Whole Foods specific product go down? No, but a customer might choose to buy a much worse product from a different farm that's a little bit cheaper without really knowing the difference. Um, so I think that, you know, this this movement to sort of the everything store where everything is available at all times is actually going to like impact the quality of the food that people are going to be eating and choosing. What people are going to be selecting the the cheaper product as opposed okay. to the better product. So, cause I was going to ask you about biodiversity. So we, so I recently had the pleasure of interviewing Steph Gaylor, who's, um, the owner of Invincible Summer Farms and has, you know, was working really hard to, pre- uh, to preserve biodiversity. And she's also one of our harvest. She's the best. Yeah. Producers. Um, which is pretty amazing cause she doesn't sell to any other retailer. Uh, just should note that, but like if, you know, I mean, I guess if Amazon's trying to carry everything, does that include bio, like you know, increased biodiversity of products? Or are they just going to have 
What do you mean by everything? Yeah, so I think that's that's a really good point. I might have overstepped it in that they don't really want to carry exactly everything because you know when you're dealing with biodiverse products or products that are um, rare breeds, they tend to be rare breeds for a reason. So. As an example, like we were talking about tomatoes before, where it takes two or three weeks from California to get to your shelf. Tomatoes have basically been crossbred and cross-pollinated over years and years and years and years and years for the sole purpose of looking good on a supermarket shelf after a three-week travel. Mm-hmm. So you have a beautiful-looking tomato on the outside. It's red, and, you, and everyone has this problem all the time, right? Unless you're going to the farmer's market, you slice into that tomato, and it's mealy, and it has no taste, and it's filled with water. Yeah. And so... You know, s- right? It's disgusting, and people. But you buy them anyway because that's sort of the option that you have at a traditional store. S- S- Steph Geller is growing things specifically to taste delicious or to have some need in the in the environment. But but like that doesn't necessarily translate to the most beautiful looking tomato. It might be a huge tomato, or it might be a little bulbous, or it might have like a weird mark on it. Um, but when you cut into them and you you taste it. Mm-hmm. You can't help but smile because the food is so damn good. <laughs> and so, you know, that the, the the idea of biodiversity in an environment where Amazon wants the food to basically last on their shelves forever so they don't actually have to um, turn through the inventory quickly uh, is scary because you could just have sort of a, a race to like 12 different varieties. That oh, that just look good. That just look good and, and stay on the shelf well and turn, you know, Ugh. and, you know basically are built that way as opposed to built for flavor or taste or, you know, to withstand different different constraints. What about, um, I mean, wouldn't Amazon, not to play devil's advocate, but like, wouldn't this represent an increased, uh, op, you know, alt options for like, m- like more, like more distribution channels, basically, for farmers? Yeah, it depends. It depends how Amazon's buying. If Amazon were buying directly from the farm and sending a truck and helping the farmer directly capture more of the retail price, then yes. But if Amazon's just buying through the same supply chain that a Whole Foods or that a traditional grocery store is, um, in in those instances or in that particular instance, uh, it's going to have no impact on the farmer from you know from a you know an option perspective where they're just selling through the same way they all they've always sold. Um, sh- I want to shift to talk about industry for a second. This represents to me at least, you know, increased consolidation um, in an industry. From your previous life, do you think this is a bad thing? Because it, it totally freaks me out as a consumer. And maybe consolidation is not the right word because they're not no, the it, same. It's, it's, cons- it's consolidation. I mean, consolidation as a former m guy doesn't freak me out on its face. Like, on the yeah. surface, it doesn't necessarily. If it if it impacts the the... Uh, industry where the consolidation is happening in a way where it crushes the people that are producing or impacts different participants in it in a way that is um, suboptimal for ultimately for the consumer, um, then yes, it's a problem. In in food, is consolidation a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, we'll see we'll see what happens. But I think you have that biodiversity risk. I think you have the significant risk of the farmer themselves struggling and being pressured to lower their price. Um, so I think you have potential impacts to the food system that aren't um, necessarily readily apparent to a consumer who's just paying a little bit lower price. Mm-hmm. So I think you know it'll be interesting to see where the where it goes with consolidation in food. But it's not always a bad thing. But in this case, I think there's a lot of potential negative externalities that could uh, dramatically impact how food gets to you. What's an example of where consolidation has been across the board a good thing? Any industry? There are a lot of different industries, actually, where yeah, where consolidation yeah. works. Uh, you know, one of one of them is where there's like a, a lot of uh, risk that's better centralized. So an, an example is, uh, you know, the airline industry where 
you know, having a lot of different people, um, I mean, people can argue that consolidation is bad there too, but, but I would say that it's, it's pushed prices down. Um, you know, it may, it may force some, some service may quality may go down, but, but generally like, safety is more standard across different vendors. You don't have a lot of small people that might not be held or not, might not be regulated the same way. And I think that in an industry where, um, you know, fewer people and more competitive price doesn't impact the customer experience as much, uh, might work that. I think there are a lot of United airplane, you uh, know, United, uh, well, <laughs> airlines also, customers who might, yeah, might have pushed yeah, back you know, on this. You know, like the I, I think, no, the, 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 there has been a decline in service, uh, for sure in the airline industry, but it's one of those industries that, uh, without, without consolidation probably wouldn't have had the financial wherewithal to continue to operate as a going concern. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where like the customers demanding lower prices, they're buying their tickets from more and more, uh, varied places at the cheapest possible price. And so having, you know, a hundred different airlines competing on price is one that makes it impossible for any airline to survive. And so in an instance like that, it might mm-hmm. make more sense for there to be consolidation. I'm not saying it's as ideal from a consumer perspective, because it's most certainly not, but it might be one of those things as a necessity for a, bus- a business to survive. What's the role of regulation in the kind of Amazon Whole Foods deal? And just, I mean, in general, no, just in, just in the Amazon Whole Foods deal. I, I it's speaking of consolidation. Yeah. It's, it, I, I think it's, it's it's complicated because it depends how Whole Foods wants to go with the, you know, whether they're going to continue uh, Whole Foods. Amazon's going to continue with Whole Foods stores. Like over time, is Amazon going to close all those stores? They're not going to be retail presence because regulation is greatly impacted by where your store is. So you have a store in Nassau County and it's a retail store. It's, it's you know, it's regulated by the Board of Health and potentially in addition to U.S. Uh, uh, New York State Ag and Markets. Mm-hmm. If they have a store in L.A., it's probably, I don't know the L.A. situation, but it, it's a whole different host of regulators. So from an Amazon perspective, there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny around food that they wouldn't otherwise have had. So they need to learn and figure out how to deal with it. When you're just a warehouse, you know, you know holding food, um, it's a very different environment than it is where you have physical retail stores and you're cooking on site. So what about with like consolidation in general as like a general theme? How consolidation impact regulation? How regulation? Yeah, yeah, and and vice versa. And like, what yeah. is the role? So, I like, think, what what's the tipping point, basically? Well, I think I think the the there needs to be and there will be increased regulation of online grocers, online food business, because it's a bit of the wild west. This hasn't existed, and like a lot of the regulations and rules and regul you know requirements were written fifty years ago. You know better than me. Mm-hmm. For generations ago, to support a certain you know, usually in response to like some problem or crisis that happened. Yeah. But but generally they were written generations ago. And so the world has changed since then. And so I think the the more consolidation there is, the the greater the like like the spotlight will be shown on regulation, how to basically handle businesses like Amazon when they're delivering groceries from a, you know, from a centralized warehouse as opposed to having a physical retail store. Okay, so I want to bring this back to um, the discussion on you know regional food systems before we wrap up. Um, what is what does this deal mean for like regional food systems and uh, regional food shed? And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think the simple answer yeah, is that I and I believe this that Amazon doesn't actually care where their where the food comes from, how it's grown, and what's happening. All they care about is offering the customer um, a a great experience, which is a good thing for a, from customer perspective, but from a food system perspective, it's actually a terrible thing because it's more important for there to be awareness raised about how and where your food was grown, which farmers growing your food, like the traceability of how and where it was grown. Because if people don't care where their food is going to, is grown, all the local farms in your community are going to start to 
slowly go out of business. Farms, like the amount of farms that have in, in you know, like the North Fork of Long Island or in the Hamptons has been declining significantly. Um, and so what you really want to do is you want those, those farmers, those farms to be vibrant parts of your community. You want to have access to food that is harvested within a couple minutes, <laughs> a couple hours of, you know, when you're going to eat it. And so I think when you, you have a very large player who really doesn't care about that at all um, and customers aren't being trained to care about it, that you have significant negative impact on sort of the regional food system, which is so critical to the local economy, but also to local health and wellness. Right. And that is so undervalued in today's it's, world. And, you know, you could say undervalued. I say it's it's people are not properly educated about it. They're told to care about certain things. They're told to care about organic. They're told to care about non-GMO because that's what some very large food brands want you to care about because that's a differentiating factor for them. Mm -hmm. What people really should care, the question they should ask is two things, I think. One is, what does the label say? Is it clean? And two, where did it come from? Is that from a farm that I, I know? Do I know the farmer? Can I identify what the farmer's doing, how they're growing? Do they care about the sustainability of their land? I think that that question is one that we need to train customers to learn because that will have the greatest impact on, on health, wellness, and also local economies. How do you do that, though? I mean, I know this is like a huge question, opening up a can of worms, but I feel like, but you know, what do you do to educate consumers? We have a lot of, lot of things that people need to care about right now. I think consumers are coming around slowly, but they're coming around. So, you know, people know that they don't, you know, that there's environmental impact to shipping things across the world. People know that, uh, you know, food grown with, you know, certain types of pesticides can cause cancer that have really terrible health impacts. And so people know that the industrial food system at a very, very general level is bad for them. The question is, what they don't know is, can they get that food at a price that's affordable? And can they get it in a way that's accessible to them? It's wonderful to want to support a local farm, but if you can't actually get to your local farm, it's, or the price of like buying something that's from a farmer's market too expensive, doesn't work for a customer. So people are starting to realize they should be eating this way. They just don't have access to that. And hopefully we can provide that. We being our harvest. We being our harvest. To make a change, shop at our harvest. That's what I like to say. <laughs> all right. We're going to have to leave it there for today. But Mike, thank you so much for coming in and talking about all of these awesome issues. Thank you, Jen. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> okay. So um, to learn more about Our Harvest and to shop, go to ourharvest.com and find mm -hmm. them on Twitter at Our Harvest. Um, want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for the generous support and also to our show intern, Hannah Weiss. Um, also, as always, thank you to Vitor Hirsch, our incredible engineer show music is by tim archer and all episodes of eating matters are available on heritage radio network website um, and as a podcast on itunes and stitcher if you haven't done so already please subscribe like share follow and post to us on facebook and find us on twitter at eat, eat <laughs> at eat matters hrn i'm jenna Liute, and thank you for listening Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.